This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. It's episode 674, and this week we welcome Dr. Marwa Zatari and Christian Weeks. We're going to talk about a new paper they put out on how to achieve sustainable indoor air quality. This was a collaboration between a group of companies we'll talk about, and they put together what they're calling a roadmap to simultaneously improving indoor air quality and meeting building decarbonization and climate resiliency goals. So uh, looking forward to that, they call this the clean first approach, uh, which is going to be the key to low energy, high high IAQ, climate resilient buildings of the future. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. Don't forget after the show, you can continue the discussion at afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site at FirstOnSite.com. Our association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com, TSI Inc., TSI.com, Sunbelt Rentals, SunbeltRentals.com, April Air, April, A-I-R-E.com, Healthy Indoors Magazine, HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to report that Doug Conan with Aerotech Environmental, Dayton, Ohio, was first to identify Parents Against Lead as the original name of the Green and Healthy Homes Initiative. The IEQ Radio Trivia question for today, September 9, 2022, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IEQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IAQ radio trivia question. Name the word that fits this definition. The accumulation of gases, liquids, or solutes on the surface of a solid or liquid. Back to you, Joe. All right. So Dr. Marwa Zatari, she's the chief science officer at Design Partners and also serves on multiple ASHRAE committees and its epidemic task force. She's also a member of the USGBC board and is an expert in building energy and environmental management, HVAC ventilation, filtration, and air cleaning. Christian Weeks is the CEO of Enverid Systems, a leading provider of sustainable IAQ solutions. He has over a decade of experience in energy efficiency and indoor air, 
He advocates that buildings take a system-level approach to achieving what he terms sustainable IAQ. He spearheaded the collaboration of the report we're going to talk about today. So welcome, Christian and Dr. Zatari. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you both for having us. I also forgot to mention Dr. Zatari got her PhD at the University of Texas. We're very, we love the University of Texas folks down there at Austin. And uh, Rich Corsi has been such a big supporter of the show over the years. He's now up in Cal, uh, Cal Irvine or Cal Davis, which? Uh, Davis, I think. Cal Davis. So great to, always great to have his support. But anyway, Christian, let's start with you. Um, what was the impetus behind? Well, first, give us a little of your background. Just get an idea of what your background is and how you got involved in indoor air quality. Sure. So I'm I'm the newbie for this crowd in terms of indoor air quality and that I've really been thinking about it, focusing on it for about three years now. But I bring a decade over a decade of experience in energy efficiency. Uh, and I most of that experience was with a company called Enernoc, a Boston-based company that was a global leader in commercial industrial energy efficiency and demand response. And uh, I sort of grew up uh, professionally there over the course of a decade or so in various general management roles. And then about three and a half years ago, switched gears and joined uh, Inverid Systems, which is another Boston-based company with a very innovative air clean technology that's helping improve indoor air quality, but also helping make buildings more efficient. So um, I'm bringing some experience from energy efficiency and uh, have been working with Marlow and others to, to become uh, something of an expert in indoor air quality as well, and how those two come together, which is really what we'll talk about today. All right, let's go to you, Dr. Zatari. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in, and you're out there doing applied science. I love that. Uh, so my background, I did my studies in mechanical engineering, and it was focused on energy and controls and uh, HVAC system. And then I did my master's in engineering management, and it was when I discovered that, you know, it's great to make buildings energy efficient, but we're missing the indoor air quality side of things. So I was so lucky to come to University of Texas at Austin, where I found this great program with Dr. Corsi, Dr. Siegel, and, and others. And it was basically, how can we make buildings energy efficient at the same time uh, improve indoor air quality? So it's a little bit about my background. I worked with Inverted for a long time. Um, doing this intersection between energy and indoor air quality. And now I'm a consultant doing applied research, a latest project working on uh, bacteria and fungi that are on the cooling coil and how that intersects with, um, with filtration and with maintenance programs, basically. Very interesting. That's one of our... Uh keen interests here at IAQ Radio. Well, let's get back to the paper. Uh, Christian, what was the impetus behind this collaborative effort here? And I, I maybe you could explain to listeners that, you know, this is not just you and, and Dr. Zatari's groups, but a bunch of companies got together to develop this paper. Yeah. So uh, the, the, really the inspiration for the paper is the reality that for a long time, Goals to improve indoor air quality in, in commercial buildings in particular have been at odds with goals to improve energy efficiency due mainly to our reliance on outside air ventilation or dilution ventilation, as it's often referred to, to maintain or perhaps improve indoor air quality. However, the recent pandemic taught us some valuable lessons about how to harmonize our indoor air quality goals and energy efficiency goals 
And so the paper was really an effort to summarize some of those lessons and lay out a practical pathway to help people achieve both indoor air quality and energy efficiency goals simultaneously based on these lessons from the pandemic and the latest science available to us on, on indoor air quality. So that was really what was the impetus and sort of the inspiration for this paper, this, this collaborative project. As you noted, uh, it was a collaboration. So Marwa and I really were sort of uh, heavily involved and in some senses spearheaded the effort perhaps, but uh, we wanted to bring others into this process. And we did that by identifying other companies that could help us offer a holistic framework and set of solutions to address um, the way we believe one should think about achieving these, these goals around indoor air quality and energy efficiency, efficiency holistically. So we had um, companies involved that are into indoor air quality monitoring, like AWARE. We had companies involved that are into testing indoor air quality, like Safe Traces, which has an interesting uh, technology to do aerosol uh, testing. We had um, other companies involved in efficient ventilation. So we had um, a company called Auctionate, which has developed some really efficient uh, energy recovery systems, collaborate and contribute to the framework. Uh, we had a company that does um, upper room UV uh, plan LED, who Marwa actually introduced me to because of the, the technology and the science behind what they're doing. And so we really, you know, we recognize that to achieve this goal that we describe as sustainable indoor air quality, better air quality, more energy efficiently with improved resilience, that it's going to take more than just what Inverid has to offer. It's going to take a holistic approach, a collaborative approach. And so we tried to uh, exemplify that or, or show that with the, the way we approach the paper itself and the framework we built around this concept. Um, but we also were really privileged to have a number of industry reviewers uh, take the time to read earlier drafts of the paper. Um, these are folks like Bill Banfleet and folks who are, you know, practicing engineering as mechanical consulting engineers and gave us a lot of good insight and helped us refine this, this framework that we're now offering through the paper and, and some efforts related to it. So it was a collaborative effort and I think hopefully models how we need to work collaboratively to design high IAQ, low energy, climate resilient buildings for the future. You know, I wonder if we could go into a little more about some of the initial pushback from building engineers and sustainability managers when, you know, when people were coming out with all these guidelines saying increased ventilation and, you know, this is how we're going to help with COVID and so on. I assume there was a great deal of pushback on that. I wonder if um, maybe, uh, Marwa, you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So initially there was um, a big pushback. Uh, because we did not understand a lot about the virus, like the modes of transmission and what are the different uh, mechanisms uh, to, uh, to do the removal. So whenever we talked about cost or energy uh, usage, uh, we got a lot of, of, of pushback. But the thing is that from the beginning, some of the recommendations, like 100% outside air, were infeasible in most of the buildings, you know, specifically when it comes to, the, to, 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 to summer. And then the other thing is that they were really energy intensive, even if buildings can do them. And that from history, you know, even before the pandemic was uh, a pushback to improving indoor air quality is to put strategies that actually consume more, uh, more energy. Uh, but with time, with 
you know, even like the guidance, and we'll talk a little bit about it, I think from Ashri, you know, developing, uh, we understood that we can come to the same removal of the virus in, in this specific situation, but without compromising energy. So it's okay to consider energy, to consider cost, and arrive to the same exposure reduction goal in mind. And is that where this clean first approach kind of came, the, the name for that, Christian? It, absolutely. Um, I, as Mara was said, the initial guidance, which was from Ashery and others, really guided by the precautionary principle, sort of encouraged, you know, a ventilate first approach, essentially. It's a pump in as much outside air as you, you possibly can. But as Marwa said, you know, we started hearing pushback to that because of technical limitations of systems or because of the costs associated with conditioning more outside air ventilation. Um, and I remember we had Bill Banfleet on a webinar we hosted in October 2020, where he said during the webinar, the ongoing assessment of the guidance, including considerations of equivalent outdoor air approaches, has led ASHRAE to conclude that high efficiency filtration can be as effective and lower cost than ventilation and is often more feasible technically. So we started hearing as, as people were doing the research and, and reflecting on different strategies to contain this virus in the, in the air and we breathe indoors, that layered approaches that emphasize filtration and air disinfection can be very effective and are often lower cost and, and more energy efficient. So it inspired this notion of what if, why not take a clean first approach? The industry for so long has just looked at dilution as the solution to pollution, which is essentially a ventilate first approach. But the, 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 we're trying to turn that on its head a little bit and say, why not start with a clean first approach? Let's clean the air as much as we can for the full range of contaminants that we need to worry about. And if we can do that, we don't then maybe don't need as much outside air ventilation, which is how we get the efficiency benefit. So that was exactly why we said, let's be a little bit controversial, maybe push the envelope a little bit, and, and let's say directly, let's take a clean first approach rather than a ventilate first approach to achieve sustainable indoor air quality. All right, well, now Christian brought up a term, um, equivalent air changes per hour, which I think is something we need to kind of define quickly here, kind of set the set the stage for the rest of the document. John, can you pull up uh, the page five figure so we can talk about that? And Dr. Zatari, maybe you can talk a little bit about E-A-C-H. Sure. Let's start for, uh, first with A-C-H. So this metric air change rate per hour or A-C-H indicates how many times during one hour the volume of a space is fully supplied with outdoor air. So traditionally, when we talk about air change rate, we're only talking about outside air ventilation. Now, from the pandemic, and we talk about infectious aerosols, we expand this term and we include E in front of ACH, equivalent air change rate, to reflect the combined effectiveness, not only of outside air, but also filtration and air cleaning and other removal mechanism. So for example, we know that we can remove infectious aerosols via filtration, and we know passing uh, air through a high efficiency filter can produce clean air, again, from you know, a pathogen's perspective, so we can add the amount of clean air delivered through the filter in CFM uh, through the uh, equivalent to an outside air, clean air, basically. In short, EACH reflect the uh, effectiveness of ventilation, filtration, UVGI, for example, and other removal mechanism. Now let's go to that clean first framework, John. Let's go back to that one you had up originally, because this kind of summarizes the clean first framework. Uh, next, that one right there. Okay, so the clean first framework, um, 
Christian, can you maybe kind of go over what you mean by this? Yeah. So the goal that we're encouraging people to, to pursue is to achieve sustainable indoor air quality. And we define that as, as great indoor air quality achieved energy efficiently while also improving a building's resilience to polluted outdoor air. So harmonize these often conflicting goals around better air quality, energy efficiency. And then by the way, what do we do when there are wildfires and we can't use dilution ventilation as effectively? The way to achieve that in our view is really building on what Mara would just described in these lessons from the pandemic, which is there are other ways to clean indoor air of all types of contaminants than just relying on dilution ventilation. But the first step in our view, we've, we've laid out this four-step framework. The first step is we talk a lot about we want good indoor air quality, we want better indoor air quality. The first step is to really define what we mean and to say, okay, when we say we want good indoor air quality or better indoor air quality, what do we mean? Let's define that with specific contaminants and specific metrics. And by the way, ASHRAE recently has published essentially a definition at a contaminant level for acceptable indoor air quality. And one can design above the design limits that ASHRAE has established if you want enhanced indoor air quality. So we have a lot of good references for how we might set targets around indoor air quality. We can look to ASHRAE, we can look to LEED or the well standards or many others as well. But that's the first step because once we know what we really mean when we say we want good indoor air quality or better indoor air quality or best indoor air quality and how we define that, then we can start to think about, okay, how can we achieve that using these layered strategies that the pandemic taught us about, not just with dilution ventilation to get the energy benefit. And so here we start thinking about, you know, three, three types of contaminants to think about. We think about particles, we think about pathogens, and we think about gases. And there are different technologies we can use to address particles, pathogens, and gases. And that's laid out in the paper, and we can talk about it a little bit more. Once we've done step two, and, and, and figured out how close those targets we set in step one we can achieve with air cleaning, then we say, okay, how much ventilation do we now need on top of the air cleaning that we've just deployed to get to those targets and maintain building pressure? So we never propose here that we're gonna eliminate ventilation. We're always gonna need some outside air ventilation, but we may not need as much if we have these air cleaning systems in place for particles, pathogens, and gases. And we can actually use a part of the ASHRAE uh, ventilation and acceptable indoor air quality standard 62.1 to determine how much ventilation we need on top of air cleaning to meet code requirements or maybe even go above those code minimums. So that's step three is designing efficient ventilation systems, ideally incorporating energy recovery that, um, that complement and are additive to the, to the air cleaning systems and not just relying only on outside air ventilation to get those indoor air quality goals set or achieved. But there's the final step then, which is really important, which is we wanna validate these designs and we wanna monitor our air quality to make sure we're continually achieving those goals from step one as efficiently as possible. And ideally integrate that with control systems so we can dynamically adapt to different occupancies, to different uh, pollution levels outdoors, to wildfires or other things that may be happening in the environment around us. And so that's really the framework, set the goals, clean the air as much as we can, hence clean first, then add ventilation as needed, but not just blindly 100% or VRP plus 30%. Let's be specific about that use the, using the IAQ procedure within 60.1. And then let's validate, let's monitor, and let's ideally integrate with the control system 
so that this works, we can sort of validate or, or um, affirm this performance on a going forward basis. I got a text here that says e EACH is a misleading metric. It does not address the air quality at the breathing zone of the occupant. I wonder if one of you wanted to, would, would comment on that. Yeah, I wanted to bring it up as well. So as uh, Kishore kindly noted that, you know, there is a removal mechanism, but also equally important is how we deliver this clean air to the space, to the breathing zone. And uh, Kishore is an expert on talking about airflow patterns, distribution, and doing, uh, you know, CFD modeling about it. Um, and he has a few presentations, very informative um, about, about this topic. So it's true. Um, that you don't need only to create clean air, you need to deliver it to the, to the space. And there is a lot of science about this. All right. And then I think what we wanted to do with today's show, and this is part one, we're going to come back, do part two. We wanted to focus on the first two steps. So the first step was to define your IAQ goals. So John, if you could pull up table one, and we can talk a little bit about these IAQ goals. I thought that was interesting. It was a nice summary of the types of goals in the literature today, uh, at least at this point. So, John, can you pull that up? There we go. All right. So, table one, common IAQ metrics. Um, maybe we could have one of you, maybe uh, Dr. Zatari, you could go down through the list here and talk a little bit about each of these. Yeah, sure. So, uh, here in this table, we summarize the common indoor air quality uh, metrics that have been used. The most common one is carbon dioxide. And we've seen that specifically in class A office buildings before the pandemic, uh, you see a lot of sensors measuring this metric, carbon dioxide, and became a metric of interest also during the pandemic. So when we talk about carbon dioxide, we talk about it more about an indication of ventilation rather than a pollutant itself. But it can only tell you about ventilation in terms of removal of the virus. It cannot tell you uh, anything about um, the effectiveness of filters, right? So it's only indication of, of ventilation. Now, it could also be an indication uh, of carbon dioxide as a pollutant, but we need first to uh, define it, like what is the level um, above which uh, carbon dioxide becomes a pollutant. I'll leave this to Christian to talk about it later. Beside carbon dioxide, we have particulate, we have ozone, and we have carbon monoxide, and we have a TVOC metric, so a total volatile organic compound metric. So these are used as an IQ uh, uh, metric indication, but not as common as carbon dioxide. Uh, so PM2.5, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you, um, you don't tell the end user what numbers to use, you give them examples of what other organizations have used over time. Is yes, that accurate? Correct. I mean, we have a recommendation uh, for, uh, for acceptable indoor air quality, we call it, and then recommendation for enhanced. So we draw these recommendations uh, from ASHRAE standard 62.1. I'm happy to say that the 2022 version was just published a few days ago. And in standard 62.1, um, there is a procedure called the indoor air quality procedure, which is a performance-based approach to determine uh, amount of ventilation and air cleaning in order to get uh, to a specific limit uh, for specific pollutants. So this uh, ASHRAE standard, they have uh, like a, what we call a minimum list of design compounds and PM2.5. 
and as a uh, you know uh, like a standard required um, design limit, but also others like green building certification such as LEED, uh, Well, Reset, and you have some industry standards that tell you a suggestion of a pollutant list and also their design limit. Now, okay. what we're doing here is uh, to have PM 2.5, ozone, carbon monoxide, and specifically formaldehyde as uh, to set the indoor air quality goals for these pollutants, because we, uh, from research, we know they are important and they are important and relevant uh, to concentration found in indoor buildings. Let's go down to that particular, uh, I think the VOCs, yeah, here we go, VOCs, but we're using, you're using formaldehyde um, as a proxy for VOCs. Why is that? Uh, so we know from research is that among all VOCs, formaldehyde contribute the most to the burden of disease because formaldehyde is abundant in, indoors and it has concentrations relevant to its limit. So the limit in ASHRAE standard 62.1 when you follow this performance-based procedure is 27 parts per billion. When you talk about USGBC, it's 16 parts per billion. So it's relevant to its limit, how it's found indoors. It has high emission rates and contribute the most to the burden of disease. And I don't know if you saw the new, newest guidance in terms of formaldehyde as a cancerogenic. Um, and from our calculation and measurements, we found the same as what the research reported. All right, John, let's go to, um, I think it's table two that where ASHRAE defines acceptable indoor air quality. This was in 62.1 2019. I don't know if that's changed. Maybe somebody can text me if any of these have changed. That's it right there. Okay. There's the compounds and uh, or PM 2.5. I wonder if someone, which of you would like to comment on this? I want to say it did not change. It is actually published uh, as an addendum for 2019, and now it's in the text in 2022. Gotcha. Okay. Very good. All right. Ask, you know, for the last, I don't know, five years, five years and a half, the committee has been working diligently in getting, you know, a manageable list of compounds and PM 2.5 that represent the, the, you know, complexity of the air. And John, let's go to the next table, table three. All right. This I found interesting right here. So you took some of the well-known, um, organizations out there like the USGBC and, and looked at their guidance. You looked at, well, you looked at, um, I guess that's reset. I'm not that familiar with that one. Uh, of course, we talked about ASHRAE uh, ventilation. And then uh, I wonder if, uh, Christian, you could comment on this. Were, were these, um, did you choose these in particular for a particular reason? Well, what we're trying to do with this table is give people a um, an easy comparison of how different standards have defined indoor air quality metrics. So that as they're thinking about step one in our framework is let's define what we mean by good indoor air quality. You know, this is a nice way just to kind of see how how they um, how different standards address different contaminants and different targets they set. But what we we end up doing at the bottom of the table to try to make this more actionable because it can be overwhelming. There's a, you know, there's bottom, that's a lot of met have a lot of contaminants and then you've got all these different standards. So what we offer in the paper is our own recommendation. And it's a bit, it's sort of a synthesis, if you will, for, um, for, for if the goal is acceptable indoor air quality, we essentially recommend following 
the ASHRAE minimums that are part of this IAQ procedure, but in particular, as Marwa highlighted, because there's so many contaminants on that list, because our experience is that formaldehyde is really the most important, often we refer to it as the long pole in the tent, we suggest that for VOCs, formaldehyde is a good proxy that can be measured with testing on a regular basis to ensure compliance. So the minimum is really aligns with that ASHRAE, uh, the ASHRAE table now part of the 2022 version of 62.1. You'll do note that the, the one difference is that we also include CO2 here. CO2, interestingly, people may have noticed is not on the ASHRAE list of design compounds. Um, and that is for the reasons Marwa mentioned before, CO2 is a good proxy metric for ventilation effectiveness. But when we're taking a clean first approach, what we really want to do is, is measure these metrics and how effective our air cleaning is, not just relying on ventilation, but the air cleaning systems. And then CO2 is less valuable as a proxy metric. Um, the question then becomes, well, at what level is CO2 a potential you know, contaminant in and of itself? And uh, the research seems to suggest at this time that until you get to maybe a thousand parts per million, but many people say even 2,500 or even more potentially, CO2 itself is not a contaminant. So our recommendation, if you're just looking at acceptable IAQ, is to essentially follow the ASHRAE minimums from what was addendum AA is now part of the 2022 standard. And then if you wanna worry about CO2, set a limit of 2,500 parts per million. Uh, if you want to do enhanced indoor air quality to be safe with CO2, you might set a threshold of 1,000 rather than 2,500. And then we simply uh, are looking at what we consider uh, reasonable, more stringent targets you might adopt, in part referencing the other standards that are noted above um, that would give you lower thresholds for particulate matter, for formaldehyde, um, for ozone, and, and carbon monoxide. So. That's uh, essentially what we lay out here in this table and how we hope it can be useful to practitioners trying to weed through all these different standards and, and, and uh, contaminants and figure out what are the, really the ones that I need to focus on to set that to, to establish the, the goals as part of step one. All right. We've got to stop and thank our sponsors here. When we come back, I'd like to kind of maybe expand a little on that CO2 uh, topic because I'll bet there was some controversy there or at least some discussion, let's say. <laughs> Yeah. All right, we'll be back with our guest, Christian Weeks and Dr. Marwa Zatari. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted full service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are ACGIH, advancing careers of professionals in environmental health, industrial hygiene, and safety, interested in defining their science. ACGIH.org. AIHA, healthy workplaces, a healthier world. AIHA.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. CIRI science.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, free shipping, great pricing, same day results with no rush fee, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation, 
for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations, TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals, availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, April, A-I-R-E.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, let's jump right back into it here. We've got, uh, we're talking about this document, how to achieve sustainable indoor air quality. And before we left, we had talked a little bit about CO2. I'm just wondering how much, how controversial was your decision to make that range from 1,000 to 2,500? Well, it's, it's, uh... The CO2 part of this paper was, for me, probably one of the harder parts to, to get to make sure we had right, because there's been a lot of discussion about CO2, and frankly, I would say a fair bit of misunderstandings around CO2 as well. A lot of people in a world where we're just using the sort of, we're in the framework of dilution as the solution to pollution, you know, using outside air ventilation to dilute these contaminants, CO2 can be a very effective proxy metric, which is how people use it and why it's, I think, such a, a commonly referenced metric. The question has been, though, is CO2 itself a contaminant or is it just a indicator of how often the air is being refreshed in a space um, as a function of you know, people breathing and that air being being refreshed? Um, and, and so, you know, we had to really make sure we parsed and understood the science. You know, people have read the studies out of Harvard University, for example, by Joe Allen and others that talk about CO2 when they say things like you want CO2 of 750 or maybe 800 parts per million. But if you parse those studies, what they're really saying is you want better air quality because you get better outcomes in terms of cognitive function. Better ventilation is a way to achieve better air quality. And we can associate better ventilation. We can measure that with CO2. And so then people oftentimes simplify that and say, well, I need low CO2 to get better cognitive function. Well, the reality is we want better air quality. And the further reality is that there are different ways to achieve better air quality. It doesn't just have to be with dilution ventilation. And so we try to parse that in the paper and explain that CO2, if we're taking a ventilate first approach, is a good measure of overall indoor air quality uh, if, you're, you know, if you're just worried about how effectively am I ventilating the space. Um, and if you're associating air quality with really people, because people are the CO2 generators we're talking about in the space. Um, but if you're worried about other contaminants, what's coming off the furnitures, the glues, the cleaning supplies, the printers in our buildings, well, CO2 is not going to re- represent those, although, again, it can be used to represent effective ventilation. But when we switch to a clean first approach, right, where we're leaning on air cleaning systems to effectively clean the air and therefore rely on less on outside air, clean first, I mean, CO2 as a proxy of ventilation no longer is so meaningful. And so we have to then understand, okay, well, now let's really get into is CO2 itself a contaminant? Or what are the contaminants that really matter that we need to control with air cleaning? And it turns out, um, and fortunately, others had done the work for us, the research, the latest research really does show that it's probably between, you know, around 250 parts per million where CO2 in and of itself becomes a contaminant. Um, and, and maybe if you want to be conservative, because the research is still somewhat unclear on this, maybe you said 1,000 if you want to be conservative. Um, so that's how we parsed it. I will say that as part of the review process for our paper, I did have a chance to speak to one of the researchers involved in the latest Harvard study on, on this. And I was very pleased that he, he told me that he thinks we got, got it right in terms of how we summarized the science. 
And so um, I had some concerns about, you know, taking a position and saying 250 parts per million. I thought a lot of people would have a, you know, struggle with that. But I think the science is pretty clear here. It helped as well that ASHRAE put out a position paper on indoor carbon dioxide in February of this year that said some very similar things, um, that essentially CO2 is a good proxy for ventilation when you're associating, you know, air quality with people. Um, but it doesn't represent the other contaminants we need to worry about. And if you're using air cleaning, it's, it's even less meaningful. I want to try and combine a question I have with a, with a comment from, from our audience. And um, it's, these are all prescriptive standards. We need performance-based standards to really make a difference with IAQ. I'm sure you wrestled with that. But also, while you're answering that, I wonder if you could – I probably should have asked this at the beginning of the interview. Who is this paper for? Is it for the building owners? Is it for the people who are, you know, doing the energy efficiency audits or the people that are helping to try and clean the air or all of the above? And either one of you can jump in here. Well, I'll take a stab at the second part of that. And then maybe Mara wants to add to that or help with the first part of that. Um, we wanted this to be a practical guide or roadmap for people who are designing new buildings, who are operating buildings, who have concerns or you know, responsibilities related to health and wellness in buildings or the energy efficiency and sustainability of buildings. So the audience we really had in mind here um, are designers, consulting engineers, designing mechanical systems for owners who are concerned about indoor air quality and energy efficiency, for the energy managers in organizations, the sustainability managers, the, the, the people worried about occupant wellness and, and indoor air quality. So that it's meant to be a practical applied uh, guide for those audiences in particular. But of course, we wanted to make sure it was well grounded in the science. Um, and that's where we, we had people like Marla involved to make sure we got the science right. Um, but it's not, a, it's not a scientific paper, so to speak. It's much more of a, a roadmap that hopefully people can apply uh, in the real world as they're designing and operating buildings. And Dr. Zatar, I wonder if you could comment on the the prescriptive standard versus a performance-based standard. This is more prescriptive, but I was trying to tie that in with who the audience was because it felt like, to me, that audience is going to be more inclined to deal with prescriptive things versus performance things, but I, I could be wrong. So, uh, you know, from a standard perspective, uh, we are trying to get to this notion of acceptable indoor air quality, right? So this is important. And today the standard tell you there are multiple ways to achieve uh, or to comply with this definition of acceptable indoor air quality, where basically you have air that does not have a harmful pollutant at levels recognized by cognizant authorities and where people in the space do not express dissatisfaction or the majority of the people do not express dissatisfaction. So this is what you're trying to get to. Now, specifically from the Ashley perspective, you can have like mechanical ventilation uh, through uh, a specific number per uh, square foot or a specific, plus a specific number per area, depending on the space type. So approximately for an office, you get a, uh, you have to supply 17 CFM per person of outside aid. So that's what we mean by prescriptive. You have a number set is kind of, uh, you know, one number fits all. It does not uh, matter if you have low emitting material or you are uh, in a rural environment or a highly polluted and where your outside air intake is next to a bus stop or next to a very busy street or a highway. So that's what we define a prescriptive approach. You have one number fits all. 
the performance-based approach uh, that Christian talked about, it's called the indoor air quality procedure, it allows you flexibly to combine outdoor air ventilation, filtration, air cleaning, and source control, for example, or emitting material, in a way to get to the design limits of your pollutants. So now in the standard, we have a minimum list, you can add to it. We have um, a suggested design limit. You can always be more aggressive and suggest even lower limits. But the way that you achieve those limits uh, is performance-based. So you can deploy flexibly different strategies and get to get your number. So that's what we mean from a standard perspective between prescriptive and performance-based. And of course, performance-based is great because you can uh, arrive to this notion of better indoor air quality at the same time do it in a cost-effective way and not energy intensive. All right, John, if you could pull up figure five, I believe that's in the uh, clean first section, but it could be in, in, in part two here, but let's see if we can pull that up real quick. There you go. This I thought this was very interesting too. Relative risk of transmission in a hypothetical office environment with both filtration and outdoor air ventilation. It seems like this is kind of like the kind of like the the backbone of the paper. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, Christian, can you comment on that? I'm actually going to let Marwa talk. I can talk about the chart, I guess, a little bit, but you're right. It's the backbone. And this is really where this all comes back to the pandemic, going back to prescriptive versus performance for a moment. The initial guidance, again, appropriately out of abundance of caution was just pumping as much outside air. And it's sort of a blunt instrument to, but it's very prescriptive. Whereas the refined guidance as the pandemic evolved was more, you know, was relying on research like this to say, let's focus on the objective. Let's define the goal, risk reduction or certain levels of formaldehyde or, or, or ozone perhaps. And then let's allow ourselves different strategies to achieve those goals and look at those energy trade-offs um, as we do that. So performance-based is nice because it focuses on what are we trying to achieve and then what are the many different ways we might achieve that rather than just the dilution is the solution to pollution approach. So that's really what, you know, in that sense, you're absolutely right. This is the backbone and this is really where it's also grounded in what we learned from the pandemic. This chart is a great example. It actually predates the pandemic, but to highlight this whole notion of a, the, the benefit of a clean first approach from a efficiency, but also from a dollar cost standpoint, um, and uh, I can describe it, but Mar was probably better suited to do so. So maybe I'll let you just walk people sure. through this chart. No problem. So on the y-axis, it's relative risk. It's a little bit, you know, uh, abstract, but it's the idea is that you can uh, reduce your risk or um, get to a, to a level of a low probability to, of infection uh, via filtration or via outside air. And then on the x-axis is the cost that include, for example, for, for filters, the first cost to buy the filter, and then um, the energy cost by basically pushing air through the filter. And then for outside air is the cost to condition uh, outside air in different cities. We have here uh, Charlotte, Houston, Chicago, and Phoenix. And if you see in black where, where there is MERV and then at the end there is HEPA, this is basically, uh, it's, it shows you is that the higher the filtration efficiency, when you go from MERV 4 to MERV 13, you lower your probability of infection or you reduce your, you know, your exposure to infectious aerosol. In this case, it was influenza. So going down on the y-axis is, is good. But then you see from MERV 13 to HAPA, it's almost flat. 
it means that you're going to pay more. You look at the x-axis, you're going to pay more going from MERV-13 or HEPA, but with no greater return in reducing the probability of infection. Now, if you compare filtration in any city here, uh, just uh, depending on dilution, you will find that MERV-13 is much more cost-effective than uh, the ventilation uh, strategy to come to the same level of exposure reduction. So MERV-13 on the graph is like $150 versus at least $550 to $850 when you depend on outside air. To put it more into, um, you know, more into a term that we can all relate to, if you improve today, on average, your filters from MERV-7, low filtration, to MERV-13, high filtration efficiency, you pay approximately three cents per square foot. To arrive to the same uh, clean air effect, you pay in, in outside air, on average, 55 cents per square foot. So filtration, three cents, outside air, 55 cents per square foot. To kind of see is that this is the idea, again, what Christian mentioned, uh, the clean air, uh, clean first framework, because it's less energy intensive than just depending on ventilation. Okay, I've got a, a text question. I don't know. This is a tough one now. Underlying this discussion is the assumption that air cleaning of typical indoor air, no strong sources, actually improves occupant health. Um, they can find no epidemiological studies that establish the health benefit from either cleaning or treating COVID in non-healthcare situations or reducing the parts per billion VOCs, although you correctly point out formaldehyde is the exception. Um, I wonder if one of you would like to comment on that. Um, so I can start, you know, I mean, it, it is, we're talking here about, uh, about it from a standard perspective. Again, the definition of acceptable indoor air quality and what is the purpose of the standard. So the purpose of ASHRAE standard 62.1 uh, specifically say that you provide acceptable indoor air quality uh, to minimize adverse health effects. And then you try to uh, say that these are the pollutants that are relevant to our indoor environment. Yes, there is VOCs. Yes, there is PM 2.5 and ozone and carbon monoxide, which we know is deadly, and try to put a realistic and feasible design limits that are achievable uh, via you know, ventilation and, 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 and filtration. Um, so we talked about how formaldehyde represents VOCs, but also PM 2.5 uh, via research is a dominant risk driver. And not only in residences where you have sources of cleaning and combustion, but also in schools and offices. So I would argue that if we reduce concentrations of deep, these pollutants, we're improving or we're getting closer to the definition of acceptable indoor air quality, and therefore we are improving or minimizing adverse health effects. Okay. What, what I'd like to do here is let's let's go to our roundup, and then when we come back, I want you to kind of summarize. We we we, we went over part one setting the, the IAQ standards. Let's get a little more into part two and anything that we missed in part two when we come back from our uh, roundup. The roundup is brought to you by April Air, providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. 
All right. So, Christian, maybe you can start us out here with this section. What, let's go to part two. Tell the listeners a little bit about what you have in there and why it's there. I'm going to do that by referencing Kishore's comment, one of his comments from earlier in the show, where he said, how can we control the sources of contaminants? Otherwise, these are merely numbers. So exactly right. Step one is about coming up with the targets, defining the, you know, what you do, how you define indoor air quality and what the goals are. Step two, then, is about controlling those with air cleaning as much as we can. Then in step three, we'll add the ventilation on top. So as I mentioned before, um, the, the, the targets that we recommend really span our particles. So dust, pollen, you know, things that come off highways, these sort of things. Also the pathogens, which of course during the pandemic got a lot of attention, these airborne aerosols, which frankly are just smaller particles because the virus doesn't travel naked, it attaches to these particles and that's how it lives in the air. So we got the traditional particles, we need to worry about the pathogens or the, the, the bioaerosols that are traveling uh, with particles. And then we have the gases. And so what the paper basically goes through is how can we control for all these three pillars of indoor air quality once we've set the goals. And so we talk about you know, MERV filters and the different ratings and, and what types of filters are appropriate. And the building you know, code, for example, most, in most cases, you know, the minimum is MERV 8 today, but there's a push to increase that to MERV 11 and eventually it'll probably be MERV 13. Um, and and you know, we think that makes sense. When it comes to particles, uh, sorry, to pathogens, we talk about different strategies to, to deal with pathogens that are airborne. They include following ASHRAE's recommendation and putting those MERV-13 filters in, which are about 90% efficient at removing particles, uh, pathogens, sorry, that come into contact with those filters. But you know, what's key with, with pathogen removal and control is being as close to the source as possible. So we also yes. talk about HEPA filters. We talk about uh, upper room UV for disinfection. Um, and so that's the, the sort of a summary of what we talk about in terms of controlling those pathogens. And this is where we bring back the concept of equivalent air changes and offer a suggested target um, for now. But then the last piece, and the one that probably has got the least attention in terms of the broader market and maybe people least familiar with is how do we control these gases? How do we control formaldehyde? How do we control the, and the other VOCs? How do we even control you know, ozone and, and, and carbon monoxide? And, and this is actually where Invarid's really core technology is uh, focused. We've developed a sorbent media technology um, that is very effective at removing these gaseous contaminants. And so just like we learned with the pandemic, it's about layered strategies. We suggest layered air cleaning solutions that combine particle filtration, which is required already, but perhaps should be increased. If needed, adding local HEPA filters, adding upper room UV during a pandemic perhaps, but then also adding that sorbent media technology to deal with the gases. Once we've controlled all three of those particles, pathogens, and gases, we've been able to, we'll have achieved a lot of those targets that we set, or at least gotten much closer to them. And then that's when we start to supplement with the remaining ventilation we need for building pressure, and maybe to close any gaps to make sure we're always well within those limits that we set. And this also takes into consideration the cost of doing these things. Yeah, exactly. So we do talk about the cost as well. Um, and, you know, the beauty of this is, as the chart that we just were discussing highlights, is in many cases, in many climate zones, cleaning indoor air, which is already more or less at temperature, is going to be much more cost effective than, you know, conditioning more outside air used for dilution ventilation. So the chart that we just looked at, figure five, tells that story very clearly. And what we find, and, that, and that's confirmed when we're doing these studies for buildings, looking at how to optimize air cleaning for particles, pathogens, and, and gases with ventilation, find that sweet spot 
where we can achieve or exceed those IAQ targets doing it cost effectively, um, we usually find, especially in hot, humid climates or cold climates where energy is expensive, that it's much more cost effective to clean first. And Dr. Zatari, would you like to add anything on that topic? Um, I mean, Christian summarized it really nice. I just want to say that, you know, there's still a lot of work to do um, from standard perspective. So um, there is a lot of work to do about, um, you know, emission rates of pollutants, um, about efficiency of different solutions, about byproducts of different, uh, you know, um, uh, cleaning, you know, and removal mechanism. So that's just a start. And we're always looking for contributors. Uh, I think Kishore would be a great contributor in terms of the, you know, airflow patterns and, and distribution. So please reach out uh, because this is, you know, um, this is a big effort and we would like to be like a community effort among scientists and academics. Will you be revising this document over time or putting out another document? Yes, this is this is a living document and we have, you know, one version, but this is definitely meant to be a living uh, document that will touch on many different facets related to indoor air quality and energy efficiency and, and will evolve as we will have new partners and contributors to the, to the paper. Yeah, and I'll just add that, you know, a call to action. If you have feedback on the paper, you think we got something wrong or something is missing, um, there's a comment about air distribution in here, which is a really good point. We reference it, but we don't really delve into it. So um, there are some concepts that require further study and other you know, concepts that maybe just need to be further expanded, um, but are reasonably well understood. So we welcome feedback and want to refine it. Um, but we also want to talk to practitioners who want to deploy this and work with us to deploy it and build case studies and demonstrate how this framework can actually be applied in the real world. We've done a lot of this work already in parts, but we haven't seen so many cases where the whole framework has been tied together in real world applications. And we would love to collaborate with people around that. Case studies. There is a case study in the document from the University of Miami. And I wonder who would be best to talk about that, maybe kind of summarize it over the next minute or two, and then we'll see if you have any final thoughts and also help us set up part two, which is where we're going to go into steps three and four. Yeah. So maybe I'll frame the case study, but Mara was involved in that, um, working with our colleagues at NREL to do some measurement and verification around this. I'll let her speak to the results. But essentially, the case study describes a, a fitness center. I think it was about 60,000 square feet on a, on a story of a, two stories of a, of a building on the University of Miami campus. And they were struggling with indoor air quality issues associated with you know, humidity, but also just the general air quality uh, in, the, in, the, in the wellness area. Um, but and they had tried to increase outside air, but their systems couldn't handle it. It created more humidity issues down in Miami. And so they were looking at other ways to address their indoor air quality concerns, but without necessarily having to rely on more outside air or to even spend the money to upgrade their and increase the capacity of their HVAC systems. And so we essentially worked with them some years ago before we called it clean first, but to do what's described in this paper, which is deploy air cleaning systems, specifically in this case, uh, sorbent filters to deal with the gaseous contaminants that are generated indoors in this space so that they could achieve their indoor air quality goals and save energy by cleaning indoor air and not having to deal with more outside air. So that was essentially what the, the goal of this was. And, and as I said, Marwa can talk a little bit about the results, um, which she was uh, heavily involved in evaluating. So the nice thing about uh, outside air and doing this type of experiment is it's unlike like when you change your uh, lights to LED and you have to do like a year before baseline, 
and then like change them and then do uh, like what are the savings. The nice thing what we did here is a running baseline. And you can see it in the figure in the in the paper where basically we open the outside air to the to certain requirement per the standard. And then we apply the indoor air quality procedure and we close outside air and we add close outside air to a certain percentage. Of course, it's not zero and add on top of it air cleaning whether from filtration perspective, uh, particulate and, and gas was. And you see visually, you can see that whenever um, uh, we, we, we do this on and off, uh, you see uh, uh, an improvement in, in, in energy. And what we don't see on the graph is basically an improvement as well in relative humidity, uh, so in humidity in general. And we're talking about Miami. It's hot and humid in the, in the summer. And as Christian mentioned, it, it's a health center that have a gym. So also it's humid inside. So throughout this uh, paper, we're able to demonstrate a reduction in energy. I think it's up to 36% of the peak energy in the summer and a better uh, case from a humidity perspective. And you can see as well the, the improvement in indoor air quality metrics we put forward. I, I believe it's in the paper. It is in the I thought it was a really nice way to summarize things. You did it up front and then you kind of went through step by step. And that's what we're going to do next week. We're going to continue this discussion when we bring back Christian Weeks, but also we're going to have Eric Malmstrom, I believe, Malmstrom, uh, come in and join us from Safe Traces. And, and that's when we'll focus more on verifying whether or not what we've done has, you know, done what, what our goal has reached our goals. So before we go, I've got, well, I've got less than a minute. Any final real quick thoughts from Christian, starting with you? Uh no, Joe, this has been a great discussion. Thank you for having us on. Looking forward to continuing it next week where we talk more about steps three and four. And um, yeah, we'll see you in a week. And we'll address some of these questions we didn't get to. Dr. Zatar, before we go, final thoughts? Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great to meet uh, again. I didn't realize, but now I know we, we did meet one time down in Texas, um, probably in passing, but it was a pleasure to be there and a uh, pleasure to have you here on here with us today. So next week we'll be back. Like I said, we've got Christian coming back. We're going to talk about parts three and four. We're going to add Eric Molstrom on there from Safe Traces. And if you've got questions, comments, etc., go to afterthoughts.iaqradio.com. Get them in there, and we'll make sure we address those on next week's show. So this is Radio Joe saying thanks to Dr. Marwa Zatari and Christian Weeks, my co-host, the Z-Man. And, of course, John, you got to have faith at the controls. Our growing audience and loyal uh, sponsors, we appreciate you very much. We'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.